Hey, brothers. Welcome to the Men of Valor podcast. My name is Casey McCauley. Happy New Year. By now, the fresh start of a new year has already faded away. You're back to reality from any holiday breaks. And newsflash, this year will go just as fast as the last one. And that's why we need to consider our commitment to the Lord each and every day. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the feeling of a new year. But instead of always hoping for a, quote, new year, new you mentality, I like to think of a biblical perspective of new year, same mercy. As Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So today, there's mercy for you. And it's this truth, new mercies, that will change us and give us fresh perspective each and every day. So, whether you've already broken resolutions or you're crushing your goals, whether you put away all the Christmas decor on December 26th, or if you still have Christmas lights up and contemplating whether you should just get a head start and leave them up all year long, today's podcast, today's message from God's Word is for you. And the same is true for our Harvest Small Groups. It's not too late to join a group. We believe that discipleship happens together. So let's get together with other men from our church and encourage one another in the Lord. And if you're already in a group, that's awesome. Let's renew our commitment to study God's word in community and build friendships and invite someone to your group that you know needs to be there. And if you're not part of a group, we have a place for you. Feel free to stop by the Connect booth on Sunday, call the church throughout the week, or go to harvest.church groups to sign up. Well, it's a great start to a new year to study the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, how everything started. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are foundational, which is why our small group study is called Foundations of Grace and why Pastor Greg's sermon is called It All Starts Here. In these first 11 chapters, we learn of God's truth. They are timeless truths for truthless times. Who is God? How did he create the world? What is our purpose? How shall we live? What is sin? We see here how Christianity answers questions about truth, science, human dignity and purpose, work, rest, gender, sexuality, evil, suffering, and judgment. Man, that's a lot. As Jesus was asked a question about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, he answers by saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? And then goes on to quote Genesis 2.24. Like Jesus, we must give answers by going back to the beginning. Have you not read? So let's read it. Let's learn it, let's love it, and let's live it, to live in God's created purpose and to experience life as God designed. All right, today's podcast is covering week two of our study in Genesis, which goes over chapters two and three. As has been famously said in literature, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that's a pretty good summary of these two chapters. Many Bible reading plans will have you read Genesis 1 to 3 on the very first day. And in doing this, you get a huge flyover of major doctrines and developments of the scripture. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it gets right to it. There isn't a long intro or a slow start. Just in this reading alone, you learn about the creation of the world and everything that's in it, our history as humanity, life in the garden, God's good design for human flourishing, in marriage and relationships, work and rest, and in knowing God. And then suddenly and unexpectedly entered the plot twist, the fall of mankind, sin enters into the world. You can say, well, that escalated quickly. The plot twists from God's good creation to humanity's deception and corruption. 
That's why it's great in our study to take time daily to walk through these passages and to read them slowly. But in today's podcast, we're going to be looking at things from the 30,000-foot view. As a side note, when studying the Bible, it's important to have two perspectives at the same time, to see both the big picture and also all of the specifics. It's to have the view of a bird and a worm, to fly high and get the big picture and to dig deep and get all the details. In hermeneutics, which is the study of principles and methods to interpret the Bible, this is often called reading from a top-down perspective. When reading the Bible, we must remember that meaning fits in a broader context than just individual verses. To understand the meaning of the text, we must move from the top down, from the larger units to the smaller units, from the genre and idea to the chapter, paragraph, verse, sentence, phrase, and word. When we read the Bible this way, we can fly high and see the author's intention and purpose, the historical cultural setting, the flow of the thought or the argument, and then we can dig deep and see the breakdown of the smaller units of verses and sentences and words through things like exegetical studies, biblical languages, or cross-references. And so we read the smaller in light of the bigger. This is why apologist Greg Kolkels always encourages, quote, never read a Bible verse insert dramatic pause. Well, what does that mean? Instead, he says, always read a paragraph at the least. I share this because every text must be read in context. We want to see both the forest and the trees. And in all of our reading, we keep in mind the biggest story and where a passage fits within the Bible's timeline and how it relates to Jesus. And that's what we are briefly considering here today. In these first three chapters, there's just so much content. Of course, more than we can handle in this short podcast. And so we're considering three brief, big picture themes that form and shape our entire view of life, our reading of the Bible, and our hope in life and death. It's the goodness of God in his creation, followed by the fall of mankind and the promised hope of redemption. It's only the first three chapters out of 1,189 chapters of the Bible. And in this, we already have the major doctrines and development that sets the stage for the storyline of Scripture. The big picture, the overarching storyline of the Bible, what's often called the meta-narrative of Scripture, is often conveyed through four simple words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You can read more about this on page seven of the Genesis Bible study book. This is the bird's eye view that answers the questions, where did we come from? What went wrong? Where do we find hope? And where is history going? In a similar way, the gospel of Jesus is often summarized in four words, God, man, Christ, response. This is the announcement of the good news for each and every person. That God created you to know him and to enjoy him. But we've sinned and fallen short of his glory. But Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to seek and save that which was lost. And through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, he gives eternal life to all who believe and call on the name of the Lord. Each person now must respond to this great truth. And through repentance and faith, we can have a relationship with God, knowing him as our creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And that is called good news. Brothers, I'd encourage you to memorize each of these. The meta-narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The gospel, God, man, Christ, response. 
The reason why I took time to mention this is because already, just in these opening chapters, we cover two out of the four summary points of both the meta-narrative of Scripture and the gospel message, creation and fall, God and man. And the third is already set into motion and hinted at, the redemption of the Savior. This is the flow, the arc of the story, from creation to corruption to Christ, and it all starts here. Genesis 1 can be described as the zoomed out picture of creation, while Genesis 2 is the zoomed in picture. It shows what life was like in the garden. It shows us a picture of how God designed this world. Over and over, God created, and it was good. It was good. It was good. And then the crown of creation, humans, it was very good. And yet, even in the garden, something was missing. The plot thickens in Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. Maybe Adam saw the animals, monkeys monkeying around, the platypus playing, and he realized his own isolation. The text is building suspense for him to have companionship. And consider how this is before sin in paradise. When Adam meets Eve, we hear the first words spoken in human history. No, it wasn't in a surfer voice like, whoa, man. It's a poetic sigh of relief, exalting woman's equality and unity with man. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You see, God as creator, he separates and fills forms and fashions, and creates things to complement each other. We see this in the complementary pairs of heaven and earth, sea and dry land, light and darkness. And so, like the other binaries of creation, man and woman, husband and wife, Adam and Eve are a complementary pair meant to work together. They just go together, like peanut butter and jelly, chips and salsa, or like pizza and pineapple. I know, that last one was controversial. And so we see this union is ultimately pointing to another pair, Christ and the church and the new heaven and new earth. It's from original creation to eternal destiny. And this is a remarkable scene. And it leads to how we have received for all of history, the blueprint for marriage in Genesis 2.24. The two become one flesh. This is one life fully shared where the two me's become one unified us. This shows us the importance of human relationships, how we're created for community. In reflection of the triune God who has eternally existed in a perfect community of love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Brothers, do you have this view of relationships, of friendships, of marriage? Do you look at people as those created by God who have inherent dignity, value, and worth, that you need them and that they need you? Regarding marriage, it's remarkable to trace Genesis 2.24 throughout Scripture and how it's used in the New Testament. A great study on this is in the book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel by Ray Ortland. Consider Matthew 19. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 to guard against divorce, saying, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Or 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul quotes it to guard against adultery, saying that we should flee from sexual immorality and that the one flesh union is only reserved for husband and wife. And finally, this beautiful truth reaches its greatest purpose in Ephesians 5, where Paul depicts that the relationship between husband and wife points to a greater picture, the relationship between Christ and his church. Paul says, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, 
and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In this, we see that the greatest purpose of marriage is to point to the greatest picture of marriage, the relationship between Jesus and his bride. Going back to the garden in Genesis 2, we see God's good rule and how humanity is to reflect this through their dominion over the earth and to multiply and to fill the earth. Adam was to work and to keep the garden. Hey, here's a reality check. Work is not the result of the fall or sin. God created us to work and to create and to rest, just as we see God doing in Genesis 1. Yes, now we work by the sweat of our brow because of sin. I'm sweating just doing this podcast. Just kidding. Well, maybe. But you see, the purpose of work goes back to the beginning, and we can glorify God in it. Brothers, in reflection, do you see God's goodness in his creation? Of all of life, of relationships, of marriage, of work, do you see God's goodness in his creation of you? If we don't live according to God's creative purposes, then we aren't living life as it was designed. It's like swimming upstream, going against the grain, or putting sand in our gas tank. So let us live our lives in light of his revealed truth for the sake of fellowship with God and human flourishing. But of course, we know this can be hard to do because of this thing that happened, well, you know, called sin. This is our reality. We all live outside of Eden. We are all S-I-N positive. From creation to corruption, glory to tragedy. God's good creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is now contrasted with humanity's failure in the fall in Genesis 3. And it all started with the diminishing and deceptive words, did God actually say? This shows us that at its root, sin is to not take God at his word, to not live by his design. In verse 1, there is the doubt of God's word. In verses 2 and 3, there is the distortion of God's word. And in verses 4 and 5, there is denial of God's word. See how all these lead to one another and are connected? You know, it's interesting to observe the tactic of the enemy, his playbook. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John says that all that is in the ungodly world is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. We read these descriptions about how Eve took the forbidden fruit as she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. We see a similar attack against Jesus in the wilderness when he was being tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread, to put God to the test, and to show him the kingdoms of this world. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus was victorious in our place. And how did he respond each time? Instead of giving in to, did God really say, he emphatically, authoritatively said against each temptation, it is written. God's word is true and we can trust it. So brothers, let us take God at his word. But in this passage, we then see how sin impacts how Adam and Eve view each other and view God and view the enemy. They were naked and not ashamed, but sin takes what is comforting and turns it into pain. They had a new self-awareness of shame, that life is now distorted by death, emotional, relational, physical, and spiritual. And we see the consequences for sin. It affects the most basic elements of life, pain and human flourishing, both in the giving of life, childbirth, in the cultivating of life, work, in the relating in life, marital strife, and in the ending of life, death. And so here in this foundational chapter, we ask the question and learn, what is sin? 
As Cornelius Plantinga has said, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Quote, sin is the breaking of shalom, of peace. Romans 1 depicts sin as both deception and corruption, whereby sinners exchange God's truth for lies and worship the creature rather than the creator. And so, sin isn't some small little whoops. Well, it's an offense against God. I appreciate how John Piper describes this. The question is, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. Wow. Brothers, I ask, do you have this view of sin? Do you view it in relation to God? Not just, I slipped up or I fell into sin or I messed up again, but let us treat sin seriously. As we see in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, 7, the Lord says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. As it's been famously said by the Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And how does this happen? How is life lived outside of the garden? What hope do we have? Well, in God's response to the sin of humanity, we see the grace of God and a glimpse of the good news of Jesus. Insert Genesis 3.15. This verse is known as the Proto-Evangelum, which is a big word that simply means first gospel. This speaks of the mortal conflict between mankind and evil. It's here that we learn of God's promise, how he promised that one day one of Eve's children would crush the head of the serpent. He would undo the curse of sin and redeem God's people. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this amazing verse, we see how God initiates redemption. And it's clear that the Redeemer is a true human. Redemption comes from the human seed. That seed will bruise the serpent's head. Redemption results in the destruction of Satan. And the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's son. Redemption will mean the death of the Redeemer. And there's already hints of this in Genesis 3.21, as God clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skin, a parallel to the coming animal sacrifices and death of the Redeemer. But no one knew when or how this would happen. And the suspense, the anticipation, it starts building. As Genesis is the story of generations, you can sense how each new name or generation would anticipate the hope that this offspring would finally arrive. And so all throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis 3 to the end of Malachi, God's people are awaiting the Savior. God makes his covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David all pointing to something greater to come, the new covenant. Who is this one who would bring victory? Well, his name is Jesus. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Flip over one page from the Old to the New Testament, and you read Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This gives new perspective on all of the genealogies that you try to read through in the Bible. And yet, even the begats of the Bible tell the story of his glory. As it's been observed by Sam Albury, Matthew's genealogy of Christ includes the outcasts, the scandalous, and the foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. And it all points back to the beginning. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And Luke 1.14 says, And many shall rejoice at his birth. This word birth is the Greek word genesis. What's this word? Well, you guessed it, Genesis, which means origin. The long-awaited Messiah came. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is finally fulfilled. It all ties back to the beginning, to Genesis, showing us how God is the creator and also the recreator. He makes us new creations in Christ. Jesus was wounded by the serpent at the cross, but by that very wounding, he conquered the serpent. And he is in the process of making all things new. This is our family story, and it all starts here. Is this one that you know well, that you meditate upon, that you build your life on, and that you share with others? I'd like to conclude by quoting, well, out of all things, a children's book. But don't get me wrong, this one is awesome, and it actually helps us think of the big picture message of the Bible. I encourage you to read it with your children or grandchildren, as I've been able to read it with my daughter. It's written by Kevin DeYoung, and it's called The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. It says, Our story is the story of God doing what we can't in order to make up for us doing what we shouldn't. The Christ suffers for our sin that we might share in his sinlessness. And so deliverers are born to die. Things fall apart so they can come together. God kicks his own people out of paradise and then does whatever it takes to bring them back again. Amen. That's what it's all about. Jesus is the snake crusher. As Colossians 2.15 says, he nailed our debt to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Brothers, let Genesis 1-3 flood your heart with the goodness of God in creation and the good news of Jesus in recreation. As 2 Corinthians 4 depicts, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But the verse continues, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. God said, let there be light in the heavens and the earth, but also in our hearts. From creation to corruption to recreation in Christ, we have hope. Jesus changes everything, and that's the biggest story. As Paul concluded his letter in Romans 16, 20, and he blessed the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, brothers. Thank you.